Please turn in your New Testaments to Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. Acts 17, 16 through 34. And this is the Word of God. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign gods because he, is pre- because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears and we wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all of the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time doing nothing except hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed your objects of worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I now proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it Being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us. In Him we live, move, and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not think of the divine being as being like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands people everywhere to turn, to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man that he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. And so Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among them, Also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Wow. Evangelism 
sharing the good news of Jesus Christ is a lot like marriage. Now, it's not like marriage uh, in, in the fact that it's hard, scary, death-defying, uh, requires constant courage like marriage does. But it's like marriage in this respect. It requires you to listen before you speak. It requires you to care enough to hear, to observe, and to adapt to that person rather than causing them to adapt to you. Do you get my meaning about evangelism and marriage? Okay, it's your wife's birthday. And you want to really plan a special afternoon and evening for her and so... You get off work early, and she does, and you go and you pick her up, and you take her to the club, and you hit a bucket of balls. And then, and then you want to take her to a romantic dinner, and so you, you go to Buffalo Wild Wings, because it's, it's all-you-can-eat boneless chicken wings night. And while you're there, and you don't have a lot of time, you, you take, in a, take in a little bit of the game on the, the big screen plasma TVs, on the wall, I mean, it is great, and, and you need to leave, and so you lean over and you spring the, on her what you know she's going to love, the, the big event, and you show her the tickets to the monster truck tractor pull rally at the Coliseum. Happy birthday, honey. Now, what is wrong with that picture? Now, if you're a woman who loves monster track, you know, uh, you will be the exception here. The problem is that's what you would want for your birthday. This is not at all what she would want. And how would we know what she would want for her birthday but that we care, that we tune in, that we listen, and that, that we want to do and celebrate the way she would want to celebrate? Because if we don't, if we just make her accommodate herself to us, it's, it's awkward, it's forced, and sometimes it's downright resented, like evangelism can be. Awkward, forced, and sometimes downright resented. And Paul here in Acts 17 in Athens shows us a better way. We've been saying in, in this whole series on Paul's ministry that it's about the adventure of grace and, and where grace leads us in our lives and how wonderful and fun and challenging it is what i want to say to you this morning is this is that the adventure of grace means loving the lost without losing the truth it means loving the lost without losing the truth i want us to look at this idea of really loving the lost and you see paul he didn't have anything against the athenians he didn't think they were any Worse than any other people. He felt like they just didn't know where to go. He felt like they were lost. He felt like they didn't have the gospel. They had been run out of Thessalonica. It was very violent. They had been run out of Berea. And now Paul and his cohorts are in Athens. And this is the big city. Athens was the cultural capital of the entire world at that time. Now... It is true that Rome was the political capital of the world. Rome was the power capital of the world. But you know, the Greek Empire and all the, the, the hundreds and hundreds of years of the philosophy and the arts and the learning and the math and the science 
unbelievable. And if you, you know, if you look at the Greeks, it's amazing still today, uh, the brilliance. And so even though the Romans were in charge, it was the arts were located in Athens. Philosophy was located in Athens. The culture that was being made was churned out of Athens, kind of like New York or Paris maybe. Churned out of Athens, not Rome. And this is the very day, the very 24-hour day, when the Apostle Paul stepped across the city line of Athens with the gospel of Jesus Christ for the first time that anyone in that city had ever heard it. The culture-making capital of the world gets the gospel, and Athens or the world would never be the same after this day. Now, I don't want to get into the philosophy very deeply of the two groups of philosophers that they meet in Athens, the Epicureans and the Stoics, only to say that uh, they were the exact opposite and they were always fighting with one another. The Epicureans uh, pretty much uh, lived life through the pursuit of pleasure and the Stoics denied all pleasure. And the Epicureans kind of had an in- insane thirst for spiritualities and and how to kind of milk new ideas to, to, to feel peace and to get what they wanted spiritually. And the Stoics were just, boy, <laughs> the Stoics were just the opposite. The Stoics basically said, God's way far off. He doesn't really care. And you basically got to do good stuff and deny yourself to have a decent life. And there's a lot of people like that still today. Um, it was the Stoics that just hated Paul. They're the ones who said, What does this babbler, look at verse 22, what does this babbler have to say to us? It's the Epicureans who are saying, ooh, this is new. We've never heard anything like this. That's cool. Why don't you come tell us more about that? In fact, it's interesting that the word babbler that the Stoics put on on Paul, uh, the word literally means seed picker. You you kind of think of a backwoods person, you know, but it's, it's really this person that's just, pick a little bit here and there, and they're incomplete, and they don't have really anything of substance to say. What's this seed picker come to town to say to us? Well, when Paul stood up and began to talk about Christ in the marketplace, do you think that he had a similar approach or a different approach than the synagogue? Very different. Why? Because the synagogue and the marketplace were two different cultures. The synagogue was where Paul always went when he went to a new city. Those were the people who already believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those were the people who were already searching and looking and waiting for the Messiah who would be king over all. That's why Paul would come to the synagogue and say, Jesus is the Messiah. And he would use the scriptures to reason with them to show that Christ was indeed the one and only, the deliverer, and the the, the king over everybody. That was a whole different thing than taking the gospel downtown to Athens. He went to what is called the, quote, marketplace. Now, we need to understand, we really don't have an analogous term for marketplace. The literal word is the agora. The best comparison I think we could probably make is maybe the internet. Because the marketplace, the agora, was not just where they sold stuff. It wasn't like the mall. They sold stuff all right. I mean, you can just imagine in this place of arts and culture and beauty, they sold probably the finest, most interesting stuff you could buy in the ancient world 
in the Agora at Athens. But this is also where the stock market was. This is also where the courts were. This is also where the, the center of the arts and the most famous, most cutting-edge artists that were, that were churning out art for that time, they were located in the marketplace, the Agora. This is where the most well-thought-of philosophers of the day sat. I mean, you would have to... You can't even compare it if you put, like, the faculty of all the Ivy League schools together uh, in philosophy. They would never reach uh, as highly thought of as the philosophers in the marketplace. And so Paul goes to the marketplace. Do you think he shares the gospel the same there that he does in the synagogue? No. Let me ask you a question. Do you look and listen carefully and humbly ask questions to be able to communicate the good news of Jesus Christ to actual people? Do you take their culture? What if they come from India? Would you be willing to study Eastern religion? I mean, what if they come from a secular place? What if they come from a religious place? I was in Spain about 11 years ago, and um, there was a group of people that I was asked to present a paper to. It was the leadership in Barcelona of Campus Crusade for Christ for that, for that country. And I presented a, a paper, and we had a discussion on this passage, on Acts chapter 17. And what I was trying to say was, is, you know, when, when it comes to doing ministry, whether it's on the campus, whether it's in a church, or just out in your neighborhood, we need to really discern whether what the culture is like. Is it more like a synagogue, or is it more like a marketplace? Is it more religious, or is it more maybe pagan or secular? And so finally, as I told, talked to them about this, looked at Paul and his great heart to, to love the people and, and, and begin to really learn their culture, I asked the $60,000 question. I said, okay... So, Spain, is it synagogue or marketplace? I didn't feel like I really needed to ask the question because me being the ugly American, I already knew the answer. I was in Europe, baby, and this was post-Christian in my mind. This was secular. Uh, this was the marketplace. And immediately they said, synagogue. And I said, are you sure? And they're like, dude, this is our country. Of course we're sure. I said, could you please explain to me? Mr. Wheat, this is still an intensely, uniformly Catholic country and superstitious. Don't you get it? Now, secularism is gaining every day, but at this time, we have to present the gospel in the synagogue fashion to religious people, kind of like the southern United States. I didn't get it. They were formulating ways to understand their culture and lovingly bring the gospel, adapting to that culture. Paul adapted himself to the Athenians. You know, I, I, I appreciate the way he spoke. Uh, he spoke in such a way that, that they invited him to the Areopagus. No way, no way. The Areopagus? You've got to be kidding me. That's like going to Carnegie Hall if you're in music. Even more so. Yeah, evidently he didn't stand up in the synagogue or in the marketplace and just, you know, shoot a bird at everybody in the name of Jesus. Evidently he didn't stand up in the marketplace and say, hey, you dirty idolaters, 
You, you pagan, hell-bound people, aren't you glad I'm here to straighten you out? Evidently, he spoke with humility and with a knowledge of that culture in such a way that they said, we've got to hear more about this. We, we, this guy is saying something that we would actually like to hear more of. Paul shows his love for the Athenians. We read in the text that when he walked into town, his heart was provoked. His heart was agitated. The, the word literally means provoked to jealousy, kind of like God is a jealous God. Not that God's like jealous, like adolescent jealous, but God loves us so much that he really wants us to have him and all that he wants to give us, and he doesn't want us to settle for idols that never pay, and he's jealous for our hearts. And Paul felt this deep compassion and this deep love. And then this amazing ability in his speech before the Areopagus to adapt to their culture just shows a lot of love for them. Now, we in the evangelical church, the Bible-believing church, we often find cultural adaptation difficult. And we need to own that. We tend to have as a first response to culture to escape it rather than to find ways to reach it. I don't know that that's the most helpful way to reach our culture. Paul shows us a different way. Oh, except for one thing. I forgot. Missions. Why is it we get it when we pay for other people to go represent us in the name of Jesus in other countries? Here, we run from culture. Here, we put up our barriers. We send a missionary over to another culture. We say, you better listen to that culture. You better learn that language. You better learn all their mores and, and don't act like a redneck and embarrass us in front of all those cultures. Why is it that here on our shores that that evaporates? I'll tell you why. Because we're threatened. And we need to own that. And we need to ask God to give us something called love with humility that resonates with the gospel of Jesus Christ so that we can listen, watch, and speak to the culture. So the adventure of grace means loving the lost, but the second part is, is without losing the truth. Sometimes we, people do love the lost so much and they just adapt and are so culturally adapted that they lose the truth. They water down the gospel. Not Paul. I actually got to uh, stand in the Agora uh, years ago in Athens uh, and the Areopagus. And yes, I, I admit I said men of Athens out loud. Um, the Agora is down in the lower part of uh, my, my children are laughing at me, they remember. Um, the Agora is in the, the lower part of the Parthenon Hill complex. The Areopagus is halfway up the hill in the rarefied air of the really smart people who gather and decide what is true for all of those down on the bottom level. And I'd like to look at a, a few key points of contact and the directness of, God, of Paul's application of the gospel in his speech before the Areopagus. You know, Paul did not begin by saying, I've come to expose your, 
your wretched, hell-bound, idol-worshiping, heathenistic, uh, you people, it's a good thing I'm here. No, what Paul said in verse 22, and he, it wasn't a dig, by the way. He said, men of Athens, I perceive that you are very religious. That's a great place to start. You know why? Because people are religious. Because God did create us to walk with Him in the cool of the day. Because God did put eternity in our hearts. Because there is something missing and we are seeking and we are longing because we are religious by nature. Even atheists are religious. You know, atheists who keep talking about God all the time. When you meet somebody and they have a different religion from you, please do yourself a favor. Don't criticize their religion. Take that as a starting point. Try to understand it and try to convert it to an understanding of the gospel, God's work on our behalf, rather than religion per se. Why? Congratulate them that they are seeking God. You get this? This is a flow that is going in the right direction because it's who we are. And, and it's kind of the... And we do believe, don't we, that the law is written on our hearts. If that's true, you know, we have, a, we have kind of a, an unfair advantage. I mean, we, we start talking about the holiness of God, our sin, and the need of grace. The law starts vibrating on people's hearts. People realize this without really being able to, to, to describe it. And we should be channeling that uh, as we love them and share the gospel. Now, that's the meaning of the unknown God part of this speech. Verse 23, for as I passed along and I observed. Do you catch that? Paul is, is he's looking very carefully. He's trying to understand that culture. As I walked along, he said, as I observed the objects of your worship... I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I will proclaim to you. I know, he says, that you are hungering for God at a deep level. Let me fill in the blank. I know that you've still got a space, a placeholder, for God, because you've got a big question mark by the altar. Let me fill in the blank. May I fill it in for you? And I've always been stunned when Paul says this. You know, he's not very far from you. Isn't that, isn't that the most interesting thing? He, Paul says he's not very far from you, from any of us. He created everything He's so vast, he's so majestic, he's so big that nothing can contain him. He cannot be represented by works of art in stone or wood or any crafts from the imagination of a person. He's so big, he's so magnificent, and he's right here. Don't you want to know him? He's right here. Paul even uses two, two quotes from their literature to help them understand the nature of God 
and the nature of a relationship with God. Two quotes from 600, AD, 600 B.C. is the first quote. 250 B.C. is the second quote. Um, Epimenides is the first quote. In him we live and move and have our being. For as your poets have said, we are his offspring. That is Eratus, 240 B.C. I mean, is that legal? Is it, can, I, can you quote a Bob Dylan quote or something while you're sharing the gospel? It's not only legal, it's loving. Do you know those Greek quotes are now a part of Holy Scripture? Though they were talking about Zeus or, or whatever, what Paul did is he got in there. He began to say, you got a question mark, God. Let me fill in the blank. He's big. You can't, you can't contain Him. He's so loving. He's right here. Don't you want to know Him? We, in Him, we live and move and have our being. We are His offspring, He says. And if we're His offspring, we're made for Him. Don't you want to know Him? Folks, the days of telling without asking any questions, the days of telling without listening and loving are just about over. Not necessarily in the synagogue culture of the South yet, but that culture is crumbling so fast you can see it leaving No, increasingly, if we do not humble ourselves, if we are not considerate, if we do not care to listen to that person, to reason with that person humbly, let me tell you something, increasingly, you're not going to be called a seed picker, you're going to be called a nose picker. You're going to be called a stupid, obnoxious redneck fundamentalist that doesn't care about anything but blasting your cannon on people. And that is not where we need to go with the gospel in Athens. And it is not where we need to go even in the buckle of the Bible Belt. In the greater Jackson area, you hear preachers all the time these days, and they're right, and I'm one of them, there has never been a time in Christian history where the culture is more like the first century Greco-Roman culture in the lifting up of humanity, in the lifting up of consumerism, of sexuality, of raw power over people. It's all true. The Bible is reading as relevantly as it ever has because of where our culture is going. But you know what? The addendum is just as true. If our culture is more like the first century culture, then we need to be more like the apostles. We need to be more like the early Christians who were humble, who did love. Have you ever noticed in Acts 2.47 it says, and they enjoyed the favor of all the people. Evidently, people liked to hang around Christians back then. I don't know. But that being said, there is a kind of adaptation However, that can lead to the watering down of the gospel. And, and sometimes we in the evangelical church, we, the Bible-believing church, we rightly see that. We say, whoa, we just lost the gospel. 
We don't want to lose the gospel. And Paul shows us the way in this regard as well. He loved the loss without losing the truth. You see, the issue is not simply comparative religions. No, the issue is not just to present another variegated spirituality or category. You know what the issue under it all is? And this is what Paul gets to. The issue of humanity is our incompatibility with the holiness of God. The answer of what religion does is how you deal with God is here, we're here, and every, all the real estate in between. The issue is the incompatibility between us and the holy God and living your life not knowing, really knowing if you're okay with God is not a great way to live. Living your life not knowing where your eternal destiny will be is not a great way to live. Not knowing that your sins are forgiven because only in the gospel historic, classic, apostolic Christianity, do we know for certain that our sins before a holy God are forgiven because only in the gospel is that forgiveness based on the work of God Himself rather than our feeble efforts. And Paul does not shrink from the gospel. I love what Tim Keller says here. He says the cross is the only spot in any religion that shows us a God who is so utterly, completely, relentlessly, absolutely, infallibly holy that He has has to pour out wrath and divine justice on evil and sin. And at the same time, the cross shows us a God who is absolutely, completely, utterly, relentlessly, perfectly, and infallibly loving that he would do it to his own son, pour out his wrath, rather than on us. I want to tell you something, folks. That's worth saying. That's worth finding a way to say. Finding a loving relationship to be able to say it. Paul loved them enough to adapt. But he loved them enough to tell the truth. You know, you're reading along in the passage and you say, oh man, this is so cool. This is like for post-modernity. This is how we're supposed to be. And then you get to verse 30. And you say, no way. Does verse 30 and following even belong in this passage? Absolutely. And that's kind of the point of not losing the truth. Verse 30. You're probably saying, what is verse 30? Verse 30, Paul shifts from all of this adaptation and and patience. He says, quote, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by the man the Savior that He has appointed and that He has given assurance to us by raising this man from the dead. I mean, did I just hear what I just read? 
Are you telling me that at the end of the day, Paul gets to turn or burn? Does Paul really talk about the judgment? Yeah. You know why? Because it's true. Because it's not good if you don't know that your sins are forgiven to live one more day like that. It is not good to be living in cosmic guilt under the holiness of God and the judgment of God one more day. And even more amazing, (laughs) it gets more amazing, in the Oropagus, I'm talking about like all the Ivy League, Cal Berkeley, whatever you want to put, you know, people, the philosophers, in the Oropagus, people believe the gospel hearing it the first time. And we're like, no, no, that can never happen. Take years to, for, for somebody to feel comfortable enough to listen. Well, maybe it would take years. For some people, it takes years. Evidently, for Dionysius the Areopagite, it's hard to say that, it took one time. I mean, are you shocked at this? I'm shocked. How in the world did this philosopher become a Christian after hearing the Apostle Paul share the gospel once? Well, it's because the gospel is the power of God and salvation. First to the Jews, then to the Greeks. Because this is reality. It's not true because it's relevant. It's relevant because it's true. This is what God is like. This is what we are really like and why we need Christ. And Dionysius, the era up guide or whatever you say, he put his trust in Jesus. I'm going to tell you something. That encourages me. You know why it encourages me? Because you don't, while you need to be loving, you don't have to be an expert to share the gospel with people who are different from you. You just need to love them. You just need to ask questions. You just need to look around. You need to discern. You need to put your hands on them, so to speak, gently. And you need to tell them the truth. I'm encouraged by that. I want you to think about us being, our vision statement says, at the uh, intersections of life and culture. You know, every one of us have people that we know in our lives. And you know, the big question is, when people are crying out there in the world and we're friends, where are we? Where's the church when they're crying? Where's the church when they're celebrating? Where's the church to answer those questions? Where's the church to actually give understanding to them? To love and bring mercy to them? To bring the gospel to them? You can do that. Go. Go and listen. Go and care. Go and love. And speak the gospel of this unstoppable love of God for sinners. And people will come. Verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some of them mocked. Are you okay being mocked at? It's okay. I mocked at the gospel before I came to Christ, and I'm your pastor. Some people mocked, but others said, we would like to hear more from you again on this. Verse 33, so Paul went out from their midst. He was, his time on the floor was over. In verse 34, and some men joined him and believed. Among them were also Dionysius, the Arapagite, 
and a woman named Damaris and others. And the church in Greece, in Athens, that very day was born. This is wonderful. Paul sums it up, and I'll close, with what he told another church in Greece, the church in Corinth, just right down the way from Athens, in 1 Corinthians 9.19. Paul said this, and I'll read it slowly, and please let it soak in. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became like a Jew, synagogue, in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, Jews, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law for salvation that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, the Gentiles, marketplace, I became as one outside of the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. And this is the one I love. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. You can do that. You can do that in your neighborhood. You can walk up in the midst of those tears and say, I totally get that. I cry too. And here's where I go. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. Here it is. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. The adventure of grace means loving the lost without losing the truth. Let's pray. Lord, would you just bring the simplicity and the beauty and the wonder of the gospel to the fore of our hearts? We're kind of scared of rejection. We run rather than reach. Lord, we are definitely a work in progress as your people. But God, we know that grace leads to graciousness. Would you take us back, those of us who have believed, even right now to the cool, clear headwaters of grace, that we might remember the wonder of forgiveness that is forever, that we might rest again in your presence in Christ, and that we might have a love spring up in our heart that wants to turn into service. And Lord, would you give us love as we lift our eyes to people, not to judge them, but to understand them. Not to simply say something to them, but to speak with them about the good news of Jesus. And Lord, just through ordinary sinners like us, Would you help us to show and tell the gospel and bring people to yourself? If you've never put your trust in Jesus and and you've got it, you're just there and you say, I I get it, I, I can't do it on my own, and you'd like to turn to Christ, just pray with me, Lord, I see it, I can't do it, you're holy, I'm not. So I turn from everything that I've called religion, everything that I've called Christianity, and I put my trust, Jesus, only in what you've done on the cross for me.
Thank you that even now you've come into my life. Thank you that even at this moment I am forgiven forever. And Lord, I pray that you would give me, a, you would help me not lose this sense of freedom, of joy, and peace and gratitude, and that you would bring to flame this desire to give it to other people. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.